All Eyes on Tech. I tell you, the Glencore tech deal, as a Canadian, you do feel a little bit of anxiety, frankly, about this whole situation. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm very pleased to welcome Cecilia Jamasmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com, to go in-depth on the Tech Glencore situation. There is no deal yet, but Glencore is aggressively pursuing it. Their CEO, Gary Nagel, is in Canada trying to sway investors with some success. So it's kind of interesting to back up for those that might not know. I mean, we went through several stories last week, so I'd almost recommend you listen to last week's news. I think we went through four stories. So to summarize very quickly, to set the table for you, basically tech, as far as I understand the story, wanted to split up into two companies in order to separate its coal unit, which is ungreen, from its copper, zinc, cobalt, which can be seen as critical battery metals, quote unquote, let's call them green metals. So I think the argument is these green metals here are being undervalued because of our coal being in our portfolio. So we are suggesting to separate this into two companies. Enter Glencore before the vote, and the vote is supposedly coming up here if it's not delayed. And so enter Glencore, who all of a sudden says, well, we're ready to buy this out at a premium. I mean, not much of a premium. I think it was something like 20%, if memory serves, from those stories last week. I mean, when you consider what copper might do in the next 10 years, and them having a major copper portfolio, this crown jewel of Canadian mining, they come in and want to buy everything up. And so... It seemed to me, and the order isn't exactly clear, but there were two main arguments that tech then made. The first, which to me was the primary argument, and in many ways still is, interestingly, is this is a Canadian company. I believe Norm Keevil said it, and we want it to remain a Canadian company, interestingly. And of course, Norm Keevil has controlling shares of the company, However, this last weekend, he actually said, well, whatever the board decides, but I have a feeling he did that because he knows what the board is thinking. So first it was, this is a Canadian company and we want it to remain Canadian. And so Pierre Lassonde, a major mining magnate in the Canadian mining world, also says, and I will help raise money and corral some investors to help pick up the coal side of the company. I think they're going to call it Elkridge. So That it was what I would call the primary argument. I don't know if it was the first argument, but it was an argument that was put forward. And I imagine that's kind of the first emotional response I think most Canadians would have. Then the argument seemed to shift to a more nuanced argument, which is a valuation argument. And I'm not sure that people are very persuaded, although I understand the logic of it. And so the CEO of tech, who apparently is new, who seems to be doing okay. I mean, I saw him on Bloomberg News and he seemed to actually speak well and, you know, not as if he just, you know, started the job of CEO yesterday. But the argument is a little nuanced in the sense that it's a valuation argument saying the copper assets are being dragged down by having coal in the portfolio. So what we're doing is we're separating the 
copper and basically the green energy assets from the dirty coal assets so that the energy green assets don't get valued lower as a result. And therefore, selling everything to Glencore, who also has a checkered history, as you know, anybody that looks at the mining news or even has read Javier Bloss's The World for Sale knows that, you know, there's all sorts of shady things that have happened at that company in previous years. And so the CEO of tech comes out. One of the arguments is, well, you're not going to get that premium valuation of it being a green metals by giving it to Glencore, right? So there is that argument. But I, I think it's actually masking a larger argument, which is the valuation itself. I mean, it, they were offered, I think, $23 billion. Maybe it was upped a little bit uh, recently when I think Gary Nagel, the CEO of Glencore, came to Canada in order to you know, sweet talk investors into coming on side with some success, interestingly. So the argument that the tech CEO makes is you're not going to get that premium in the green energy metals. I, the copper is not going to see a increased valuation by giving it to Glencore because their ESG record basically isn't going to be great. And it's still going to keep the coal with it. So therefore, it's going to defeat what we were trying to do by separating the two. Now, in my opinion, it's kind of dancing around the larger underlying argument, which is we know that copper, sure, it's around $4 a pound right now. But in the future, we expect it to be much higher. I mean, Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs compares the situation with copper now to oil at $10 a barrel. You know, like this thing, yeah, it could go up 3x, but according to Jeff Curry, like we should be stretching our imagination as to what could happen to copper. And to me, we all know how important copper is. And, you know, time continues to march on. And these supplies continue to, you know, dwindle and we continue to march towards this place where there's going to be a shortage of copper. And so to me, this is the real argument at the heart of it. There's basically, we don't want to sell our crown jewels from a resource nationalism perspective. Like, let's be frank here in Canada. And the second is the valuation, although in today's market, might be perceived as reasonable compared to where we think this is going, this is not reasonable. This is clearly not enough money. To me, this is kind of like the unspoken words that are going on. And I don't know why it's not being said, maybe because it's too speculative, right? But I just think, you know, and so this ESG argument is being used that, you know, you're not going to get the premium. But I wonder from just like a purely rhetorical uh, perspective, you know, speech making and argument making. I wonder if the argument is simply too nuanced, right? Because then it's like, well, then we're having a debate about ESG and whether the valuation will be reflected in ESG rather than about valuation itself and where we think this is going to go. And do we want as Canadians to lose this precious asset? And that's somehow getting lost in all these, you know, what I would call a smaller argument, 
although relevant, it's not, you know, saying, oh, if we split it up and we're going to get a better valuation, it doesn't hit the heart. Like it does saying, we're selling off Canada's crown jewel of the Canadian mining world, a major resource here of copper in a world that, you know, where are we going to get our copper from? Or is Glencore going to prefer to sell it to European clients? Like we will lose control of what Mark Bristow calls a strategic metal. And there's also been Congress people who have also called it a strategic metal. Do we really, as Canadians, want to lose this copper portfolio? Do we really want to lose control of that with everything that we're seeing in the news? So there's that. And then there's the valuation perspective that, yeah, okay, if we look at $4 copper, sure, maybe it's quote unquote good value that Glencore is offering. But is this just short-termism, and are we not looking at the big picture, the long-term picture, that what Jeff Curry is suggesting could happen to copper in the next, you know, five to ten years? As Cecilia points out, this is not like some far-off-in-the-future speculation here on copper. This is like intermediate term. This is within this decade. So that is to set the table for you. And now you have other suitors that are coming in, including Freeport, as we're going to see in these news articles here. We have more coverage. Freeport, McMoran, Valley, Anglo-American. So, I mean, if this is such a great valuation that tech is being offered here, why are there all these sharks in the water from people that probably know the copper business almost better than anyone on this planet? CEOs of mining companies. So let's see what happens. I mean, it, every day is a drama here. So let no one say geology is boring. Also coming up this episode, we have Namibia Critical Metals President and CEO Darren Campbell, who discusses the company's Loftal Heavy Rare Earth Project, which is a joint venture with Jogmec, which is a Japanese I believe, governmental organization, which is out to secure natural resources, critical metals. And so they have a joint venture in Namibia. So we hear about Namibia, we hear about rare earths. And I mean, it took me back to the Dines letter, these heavy rare earths that Darren says the company has that are particularly valuable, including terbium and dysprosium, if I'm pronouncing that right. If I recollect my Dines letter properly, uh, I read all about that stuff way back when in 2011-2012. What a fantastic bull market that was. That's what got me into this whole business, actually, that bull market. So anyways, Darren Campbell on Namibia and Rare Earths and Namibia Critical Metals, Loftel Heavy Rare Earths Project. So a super fun show is ahead of us and some wonderful news stories. Thank you once again for joining us. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Darren Campbell, President and CEO of Namibia Critical Metals for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Darren Campbell, President and CEO of Namibia Critical Metals to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Darren, welcome to the show. Hi, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I think you're just in such areas as far as metals and as far as parts of the world that people find so interesting right now. So it's great to have you. So why don't you tell listeners who might not be familiar, what's the story of Namibia Critical Metals and what are you working on? Namibia Critical Metals, we are developing a tier one heavy rare earth project in central Namibia, Africa. Our Loftal project is a globally significant deposit of the heavy rare earth metals dysprosium and terbium. These are two of the critical metals used in the production of permanent magnets for EV motors, wind turbines, and other electronics. Our Loftal project is fully permanent with a 25-year mining license that was issued in July of 21 by the Namibian government. And we are development funded under our joint venture partnership with the Japanese government agency, JOGMEC, the Japan Organization for Metals and Energy Security. JOGMEC is, as I stated, a a state agency, a department. They have a multi-billion dollar budget and a mandate to secure supply and natural resources for Japanese industry. About a decade ago, JOGMEC, with their Japanese industrial partner, Sojits, did a a joint venture deal with a a very little-known light rare earth explorer out of Australia called Linus. They funded Linus now over 300 million U.S. dollars to secure supply of light rare earths for Japan. They've now turned their eye and attention to our Loftal project as being a long-term potential supplier of these heavy rarities, dysprosium and terbium, and that's exactly what we're on track to accomplish. Well, it's always impressive when you get a Japanese government agency of sorts teaming up with you. So how big is this project? Like if they're working with Linus before, which is maybe the biggest or one of the biggest names in the business, how big is this thing? Yeah, so in our uh, first two and a half years with our partnership with JOGMEC, we've made some significant milestones in growing this deposit. Very impressive. So we've been working on it for about a decade. We first published our, our maiden resource back in 2012. We put out a, our initial preliminary economic assessment in 2014. And a very valid criticism at the time was the project was just too small. At that time, it was only about a 6 million ton total rare earth oxide resource and less than a seven-year mine life. But we've completely dispelled those criticisms with advancements in the project with their JOGMEC partners over the last two years. In 2020, we kicked off a 16,000-meter drill program, and we made a massive increase to the size of the resource, bringing it up from 6 million tons to 53 million tons of, of TRIO. And the most important metric in that resource update for us and our Japanese partners was the amount of contained dysprosium and turbium. Our deposit currently sits at about 4,700 tons of contained dysprosium and over 725 tons of turbium, which clearly elevate Loftal to being one of the largest deposits of these metals anywhere in the world outside of China. And in addition, you know, we think that that's just still the tip of the iceberg. My geological team has made the comment to me many times that after a decade now of working on this project, they've cracked the geological code. So we think that there's still considerable exploration upside to grow this to a much larger district scale deposit. We are very confident that Lofta will be in production for decades, not years. Excellent. So as far as the processing then of these rare earths, dysprosium and terbium, It sounds like uh, that always seems to come up and it sounds like China has a bit of a stranglehold, but I don't know. So what's your plan? Uh, Do you guys have a plan as far as where you want these metals to be processed? Yeah, absolutely. So particularly in rare earth projects, just as important as the geology and finding the resource initially, you also have to be able to prove you can economically process it. We've been working for, again, over a decade. We've employed all of the top 
metallurgical and flotation and processing consultants in Australia, South Africa, Germany, and Canada. So in addition to you know, cracking the geological code, we believe we've also cracked the processing code. And we've developed and fine-tuned a very simplified processing flow sheet, which will allow us at the end of the day to produce a highly concentrated mixed rare earth oxide that is primarily heavy rare earths, and that is importantly radioactive free. So we're removing all of the thorium and uranium from the material, which enables us much greater flexibility to send our product anywhere in the world for final processing and separation. And we believe that by the time our project comes on, on stream, which we're targeting the end of 2026, that there will be a number of other processing final separation options available to us outside of China. Okay, excellent. And so how is working in Namibia specifically? People want to know, you know, there's that secure place to develop. How's working over there? Namibia, in my opinion, is one of the best jurisdictions in all of Africa to work. We've been operating there since 2010, 2011. We have an excellent relationship with all levels of government and the community in which we work. Uh, Namibia is very socially and politically stable. They have excellent infrastructure and they're mining friendly. There's a long, rich history of, of diversified mining in the country. They, you know, base metals, gold, diamonds. And most people don't realize, but Namibia is one of the top three or top five exporters of uranium in the world. They have some of the largest uranium mines in the world in Namibia. So they have a very good mining ecosystem there, uh, well-established, and they're mining friendly. It's a big part of, of their GDP. Okay, excellent. So then as we zoom out a little bit, uh, what is your roadmap then? So you've drilled some, you increased the size of this deposit in 2020, 2021. You have this joint venture with Jogmex. So what's next? Where is this going? Yeah, so to date, we've, we've invested almost $35 million in this project. Our Japanese partners are spending $20 million to earn a 50% interest. And we're at around 10 million right now. So they will be earning their first 40% interest in the project within the next few weeks or month, and then moving into the final term of their agreement to spend another 10 million to earn an additional 10%. So a lot of the work that's been done over the last two years was compiled into this updated preliminary economic assessment uh, for the larger project that was published in November of last year. Uh, we are now in the midst of a PFS, a pre-feasibility study. So we've, we're just wrapping up resource and infill drilling in the next week. So those results will be coming out. We're also doing pilot scale flotation and metallurgical work with our metallurgical consultants, SGS Canada. So all of that work is going to be compiled and we are looking to deliver our first PFS on the project in Q1 of next year. And then immediately moving into the final feasibility study uh, in 2024 to make a final production decision. As we wrap up here then, uh, what is your message for investors? What do you want them to know from our conversation here? Well, first of all, to know about us. One of the issues we've had is we're, we're a very tightly held stock with 65, 66% insider ownership, and we're not a very widely followed stock. So we're trying to get the message out. We think we're very critically undervalued. I think we have the right project in the right place at the right time, and we have a fantastic joint venture partner to help accelerate us through feasibility and into production. So we look forward to a really consistent and exciting news flow over the next 12 months. Okay, excellent. And if people want to find you, which exchanges can they find you on? We're traded on the TSX Venture under the symbol NMI and also on the OTCQB market in the US under the symbol NMREF. Darren Campbell, President and CEO of Namibia Critical Metals, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you. 
And thank you once again to Namibia Critical Metals for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. And here it is, the story of the moment. Tech shares surge above Glencore offer as other major miners eye metals unit. So now the share price has surged above Glencore's offer. So the plot thickens. Bloomberg News via mining.com. Tech Resources shares surged to a record Monday exceeding Glencore's per-share takeover offer price for the first time as other major mining companies show interest in acquiring the Canadian firm's metals operations. The stock gained as much as 9.2% in Toronto after Freeport-McMoran, Valet, and Anglo-American were reported to be evaluating potential bids for tech space metal business if the firm spins out its coal assets. Norman Keevil, the 85-year-old magnate who controls tech through supervoting Class A shares said in a Sunday statement that he'd support a transaction on the right terms after the separation. So that is kind of the latest from Norm Keevil there on Sunday, as far as I understand. So again, as we said in the introduction, he's willing to support whatever the board wants. So Norm Keevil moderates his initial statement, basically saying he would be willing to bend. He must be under a lot of pressure, I imagine. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar company, so there is a lot at stake here. Tech is racing to get enough investor support for the coal spinoff ahead of an April 26th vote while fending off an unsolicited $23 billion takeover offer from Glencore for the whole company. Keevil said that pursuing a deal for the entire company before separating its coal and metals businesses would rob shareholders of significant post-split value. Tech stock rose 5.7% to $63.90 per share in Toronto. $63. You know what's crazy? In 2016, I think it was January 2016, at the bottom of the bear market, I think it was at $3. So that is quite a crypto-like move there. I guess it's been seven years, so maybe that's not insane, but pretty impressive. Exceeding the value of Glencore's offer of $63.22. So tech stock rose to $63.90, exceeding Glencore's offer of $63.22. Tech's copper and zinc mines have long been admired by the world's biggest miners, but Keevil's resistance to sell has kept the company independent so far. Tech's board has rejected two takeover proposals from Glencore this month, most recently after the company offered to add a cash component to buy tech shareholders out of exposure to the combined coal businesses. So Tech's board has rejected two takeover proposals from Glencore this month. So we're going to hear that in the interview with Cecilia. Glencore grabbed a momentum shift last week as Institutional Shareholder Services and Glass Lewis both recommended that investors vote against Tech's spinoff plan. And as Bloomberg News reported, that China Investment Corporation, which owns 10% of Tech's Class B shares, favors Glencore's proposal because it offers a quicker and cleaner exit from coal. Continuing on, tech attracts interest from Valet, Anglo-American, and Freeport. So this came out also yesterday. Tech Resources is said to have been approached. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Tech Resources is said to have been approached by Valet, Anglo-American, and Freeport-McMoran on potential deals for the Canadian miners' base metals business if shareholders approve a planned split. The three global miners are among at least six companies that have expressed interest in transaction with tech post-split. Six companies have expressed interest. Local paper The Globe and Mail reported on Sunday, citing sources close to the matter. 
So the sharks smell blood. The Vancouver-based company, which is Canada's largest diversified miner, proposed in February spinning off its steelmaking coal business to focus on base metals, particularly copper and zinc. On Sunday, former chairman Norman Keevil, whose family controls tech through its ownership of the majority of the company's Class A shares, reiterated his arguments against the takeover, and we have a quote, As there has been much media commentary regarding my views on the future of tech, I would like to provide a clear statement of my perspective. My colleagues and I are proud of what we achieved through 30 years of building tech, growing the company 500-fold from a $25 million market cap to $12.6 billion, with double-digit compounded growth in shareholder value and continuing growth in recent years to $25 billion today. End quote. Keevil clarified that he would support a transaction be it an operating partnership, merger, acquisition, or sale, with the, quote, right partner on the right terms for Tech Metals after the planned separation. Tech's chairman emeritus added that Glencore's proposal was, quote, the wrong one at the wrong time, and that the split should go ahead. Now, here's the elephant in the room. Cecilia Jamazmi puts it beautifully in the subtitle here, calling on the federal government. With just over a week left on the clock for Tech shareholders to vote on the split, Glencore is trying its best to persuade the Canadian miners' shareholders. Last week, Chief Executive Gary Nagel landed in Toronto to personally explain his company's vision and intentions. By Friday evening, two influential shareholder advisory firms had recommended against tech strategy, while its largest investor, China Investment Corporation, said it favors Glencore's proposal. Michael Gurin, president and CEO of the Mining Association of British Columbia, voiced on Mondays his concern about the eventual takeover of tech. And we have a quote from Goring, quote, the potential loss of BC's longstanding mining champion and head office jobs in Vancouver is not in the best interests of British Columbians. We should be growing more local head office jobs in Vancouver, anchored by companies like Tech Resources, rather than see them go elsewhere. End quote. He called on the federal government to review the deal as the future of a major Canadian critical minerals producer is on the line. It's really hard to imagine the government letting this go through in this environment from over here. The company owns four copper mines in South America and Canada, which produced 270,000 tons combined last year. Tech also expects to double copper output after the second phase of its Quebreda Blanca project in Chile ramps up to full capacity by the end of 2023. Glencore believes that operating Cabrera Blanca jointly with the nearby Colawazi mine, in which the Swiss multinational holds a 44% stake, would add at least a billion dollars of value to its coffers. The idea, Glencore has explained, is that QB and Colawazi share infrastructure rather than creating a single operation. The latter would require approval from Anglo-American, which has 44% of Colawazi, and Sumitomo, which holds a 30% indirect interest in the Chilean copper miner. Top miners, in turn, are hungry for copper assets as demand for the metal accelerates and a global shortfall looms. BHP, Rio Tinto, and Glencore have all disclosed that they are actively looking to grow their copper exposure. So excellent reporting from Mining.com senior editor Cecilia Jamazmi. I'm just going to go through a few headlines here. HUD Bay makes friendly bid for Copper Mountain amid M&A flurry. So this by Maryland Scales at the Northern Miner, and just a paragraph here, Hud Bay Minerals and Copper Mountain Mining have agreed to merge, creating a copper-producing powerhouse with projects across the Americas 
and Canada's third largest copper miner, producing 330 million pounds of copper annually. The all-share deal values Copper Mountain at $439 million U.S., which represents a 23% premium to its shareholders. A lot going on in the copper market. And finally, Volkswagen to partner on Indonesia EV battery ecosystem. This is also Reuters via mining.com. So we heard about Ford and a Chinese partner in Indonesia. Now Volkswagen will build an electric vehicle battery ecosystem in Indonesia and will partner with miner Valet Ford and China's battery minerals producer Zhang Huayu Cobalt, the Southeast Asian country's investment minister said. So I'm not sure if this is the same plant as the $4 billion plant that Ford was going to build or if this is going to be a second. Because at the bottom of the article, again, this is Reuters, it says last month Ford inked its first investment in Indonesia by joining Valet and YU in a $4.5 billion nickel processing plant in southeast Sulawesi, which is in Indonesia. So it's not clear if really Volkswagen is just joining the party or if they're actually going to create a whole other thing. It kind of sounds like they're joining the party. And finally, one more headline, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Lithium in China may be bottoming as low margins hit producers. Small producers are looking to stem losses after the price of the key battery material collapsed by over two-thirds in just five months. Thin stockpiles and improved prospects for battery storage and electric vehicle sales suggest that demand may be about to recover. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. government bond yield. And on April 18th, the 10-year bond is yielding 3.57%. That is 0.14% higher than last week. So bouncing back up after going down to 3.43. So a bit of a bounce in yields there. And turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,003.51 per ounce. That is $2 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $25.13 per ounce. That is $0.10 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,072.91 per ounce. That is $69 higher than last week. And palladium is also trading higher at $1,603.36 per ounce. That is significantly higher. That is $143 higher than last week, so a big jump there. Turning to industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.08 per pound. That is $0.04 higher than last week. Iron ore is trading at $118 even per ton. That is $2 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading $0.02 higher at $1.08 per pound. Lead is trading $0.05 higher at $1 even per pound. Nickel is also trading higher at $10.90 per pound. That is $0.62 higher than last week. And tin is trading $0.24 higher at $11.27 per pound. And cobalt is trading at $15.84 per pound. That is unchanged from last week. And lithium continues to drop at $28.02 per kilogram. That is $5 lower than last week. We have been tracking lithium for only six weeks, 
but it is almost in half. It was at $51.54 per kilogram six weeks ago. Now it's at $28. Uranium is trading at $51 per pound. That is $0.65 cents higher than last week. And finally, zinc is trading $0.03 cents higher at $1.29 per pound. So zooming out, it seems like the wind are in commodities sale right now. Almost everything is up. I mean, precious metals are kind of just slightly higher, but you look at platinum and especially palladium is much higher. And then you see industrial metals are all edging up here with particular attention to nickel, lead, and tin with the big outlier being lithium. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to present Senior editor at mining.com, Cecilia Jamazmi, to the Northern Miner podcast. We're going to discuss tech and Glencore and everything that's going on with it, all the details. So I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Cecilia Jamazmi, Senior Editor at Mining.com to the Northern Miner Podcast. Cecilia, it's well overdue. Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, it's so exciting to have you at the point of such a dramatic story. We've been following mm -hmm. the developments at Tech. You've been writing about it. You've probably been posting about it. So help us out here because it's almost a bit of a complicated story, this mm -hmm. story that seems to be at center stage of the Canadian mining, you know, news, even, you know, one of the main stories, arguably the main story in mining right now. It's a bit of a complicated story, though. Uh, so could you help give us some background on, you know? Oh, ab yeah, absolutely. Just so people who are listening to us today have it clear, Tech is like the Canada's largest diversified miner, and it's been around forever. It's been growing from a little copper company to what is now a 20-something billion company. Back in February, the company decided to announce that they were going to split in two. On one hand, tech metals with all the copper and zinc. And on the other hand, what until now is known as Elk Valley operational resources, that would be basically all the coal operations that uh, tech has. And shareholders has to vote about this on April 26th. What happened? At the time they announced that, a few analysts came out and said, this is going to open up a whole can of worms because there are going to be companies after tech. And sure enough, a few weeks later, Glencore comes around and offers to buy out tech. And that really was not uh, very welcomed by the main shareholders and investors of tech. And it's been a, a whole drama developing from then. Okay, excellent. So if we back up a little bit then, like I did some reading, we read some stories mm -hmm. last week on the podcast, and why did they decide to split into two different companies? I would assume it's because of the ESG mandate and let's have the green energy metals, and on the other hand, separate the coal from it. But I also got the sense that it also had to do with Norm Keeble's 
controlling shares like does that it was that involved at all Go not ahead. really like he's I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about the shares later but the original idea was that ted wanted to there's a lot of pressure everywhere to all the companies to walk away from coal and even though the coal that tech produces is one of we can say the cleanest and also, it's a call that is uh, for steel making purposes, which means within steel so far, we have not found a replacement for steel. Therefore, we need to keep mining this kind of coal, whether we like it or not. But with all that's going on and climate change and pressure for ethical investors and whatnot, Tech decided to divide up the business and group all the coal operations in one and the metal operations in another one. Now. What happened is that Ted operates under a structure that in the Toronto Stock Exchange has two kinds of share, class A and class B. And those who have class A shares have more, more of a saying. Their vote, to make it very simple, their vote is worth more than votes of those shareholders that have class B. And Norma Kibble, who is, you know, the founder and right now has the title of Chairman Emeritus, he came out saying that he is not open to sell the company to any foreign company. Now, that was the original saying that was all, including myself, mea culpa. I quoted that, that he said. But last night, Tech put up a statement by himself that where he came out and said, I want to clarify my comments. And he basically said, it's not that I'm opposed to conversations, deals, takeover after, after we split the company. But what I'm opposed right now is to Glencore strategy. And they say it just doesn't make sense. It's not the right partner. It's not the right time. So what, what means to me, well, to everyone who, who's listening is that Tech eventually is open to be acquired or in a partnership, but right now they want to go through the split. That's what they're pushing from the top. Okay, excellent. So yeah, there's a little bit to untangle there because first, it seemed to suggest that they were saying, look, tech is a Canadian company and we want it to remain a Canadian company. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. it seems like the story is changing, maybe from pressure from shareholders. And, and just a quick clarification uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, on, now Glencore, my impression from reading the stories is they want the entire thing, not just the coal and not just the copper. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. What is interesting is that Glencore strategy is to acquire the whole of tech and then Glencore itself is going to divide up in two. One company will have all the base metals, which includes cobalt, and the other area will have all the coal operations. Now, what the, the criticism from Ted, particularly the CEO, is, is that Glencore apparently wants to mix base metals with oil, which that is qualified as a structural problem because they're really two absolutely different businesses. They run differently, they target different clients and consumers. Basically, that's it's a, it's a fault in the design. That's what tech says. But also, the coal, as I said, the coal that tech produces is one of the highest quality and a mix with Glencore's coal, which is thermal coal, the coal that is used for power, 
for energy generation that is one of the most polluting ones, they would put on the same boat that takes coal and Glencoe coal, they will all mix together and that will definitely diminish the value of the company. It will be a loss of value for shareholders in tech because right now they only have exposure to metallurgical coal. And all of a sudden they're gonna have now oil and thermal coal. So those things seem to be like a winning argument for, for tech until Thursday morning. What happened? We have um, the CEO of Glencore landing in Toronto and going personally to meet many shareholders, talking to them, selling the vision, their plan. And also they came up with a slightly different proposal because they're offering now cash for shareholders. Basically, if I'm a shareholder of tech, I can choose whether I want to have exposure to coal or I'd rather get a portion in, in cash, but I won't have exposure to coal. So that for many seemed like a great alternative. So then we arrived to Friday evening and we have two major firms recommending to buy Glencore's proposal. And tech's largest shareholder, even though has not said it officially, it was reported either by Reuters or Bloomberg, one of the two, that they they came out saying, we are going to vote for Glencore's proposal. We backed their proposal. So all of a sudden, the story switched. And now we have Glencore on top and take a bit like seemingly losing the battle. But then, as I said, on Sunday, the, the founder and, and top shareholder came out and explained the whole vision. And then... Then it's when they say, it's not that we are against a takeover, but we think that Glencore does not make sense. It's not the right time. We would be talking to people, to other companies afterwards. Interesting. So just to clarify on Norm Keeble, ultimately he controls, like he can decide if he wanted to, but he kind of abdicated or let that go on Sunday in theory, but in, in practice- theory. In, in practice, practice, he can he can end any deal. That's correct, unless somehow Glencore can persuade all the other shareholders, the minority shareholders, let's say, and then they all push and vote for, for Glencore's proposal. Now, what many are suggesting, there's many as in analysts, experts in the industry are suggesting that perhaps tech should take a step backwards and stop this upcoming vote before they, they can be like against the proposal that tech should take a pause and say, okay, we are not going to put our uh, plan to get divided into two companies to vote now in April, maybe perhaps in two more weeks, three more weeks, to give them a bit of breathing room to explore other alternatives, perhaps reimagine this division or or something, because as it stands, analysts think that Glencoe has a very big chance, which, as a friend told me, is a pity because uh, tech is like the Tim Hortons of Canadian mining. It's very engraved and very it's dear to many Canadians, but money is money. <laughs> and it does come down to money. And like, isn't the issue... At the core, because I, I agree, sure, there's probably a sentimental issue, but uh -huh. my just just from my sitting at my desk over here, 
The issue is, to me, is copper is about to go pretty wild potentially in the next 10 years. And here these mm -hmm. guys come in right before. And so ultimately, it's an issue of valuation, it, is that it's undervalued. And I don't hear the people from tech saying, this is not worth like we we're about to go on a big bull market here. We don't want to be taken over now. But maybe that's not a is that a legit argument? Like to me, that's it's only twenty three billion dollars for what they have. To me, I thought, you know, you can keep your money. I'd rather be in the copper. Thanks. You know, I, I'm with you. I, I'm not a financial expert, but I totally agree with you. Copper is already we are seeing uh, a tight a tight market, and all the forecasts say that copper is going to be undersupplied in the coming years. And it's not in the like very long future. We're not saying 20, 25 years, we're saying five, 10 years. It's really around the corner. And the world needs copper. It's the, all the big miners are going after copper. We need it for the transition to a green economy. Copper is key for electric cars and all the infrastructure that supports renewable energies. Therefore, if there's a lack of supply and tech has it, I don't understand why they would like to sell it. But then again, I'm not a financial advisor. It seems to me that copper, since everyone wants it, you have it, you keep it. Well, exactly. Like, and that's why, like, for me, like, I don't actually understand, like, this whole argument over, oh, well, you're going to not have the same ESG quality. Like, I get it. But I don't know why they're not coming out there and saying, listen, this is a strategic metal and we want to stay in Canada. End of story. You know, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and you guys can dance around it and we know where this is going. So it seems like they've kind of tied themselves in knots. And now even Norm Keevil has tied himself into not being able to veto it. And I mm -hmm. don't know, he's he's in his 80s. If, if I was Norm Keevil, I'm just saying too bad. You guys can all hate me all you want. But I'm sure it's more <laughs> complicated than that. I'm you know sure. What I'm saying? And yeah. also there's another little um, details that we haven't talked about that are more on a subjective level, but uh, we have to remember that both CEOs, Tech and Glencore, are fairly new in their business and they both replaced long-standing CEOs that were very, very stern or very rigid in what they saw for the company. So we have uh, Nagel who took over in mid-2021 and a price has only been in the job a little over six months. So basically, they do come with a fresh view. But part of me wonder if they want to prove themselves. They want to do the, the next big thing, right? They want to go down in history as, oh, this is the CEO that fend off the takeover. Or, oh, the CEO that was able to acquire Canada's largest diversified miner. So there's a, a little bit of that too in, in part of the, the components. I've gone great, great length to win investor support. You know, the fact that Nagel took a plane and went to Toronto to be face-to-face. -face. And he's saying, I'm willing and, a, and able and happy to sit down with techs, people, chairman, CEO, anytime and arrive to an agreement. He's not shying away. He really wants to take over tech resources. Well, yeah, I don't know why he wouldn't want to. And it seems like other people do as well. Like, I mean, you just reported here, Ballet, Anglo-American and Freeport also are interested. So what's the deal there? Well, even though those companies did not reply to my calls or emails, um, my take on it is that it's very clear. 
All of those three, they have operations, big corporate operations, uh, particularly Anglo-American and Freeport. They have operations very close in the neighborhood to where tech mines are. I'm talking about Northern Chile, particularly. So it will be very easy for them to use these synergies. They basically will double or triple their exposure to copper without having to invest that much because they have the infrastructure, they have the business, they, they have everything down there to just merge the operations. So that kind of, it's not, it's not a surprise for me. On the other hand, Valley that has so much zinc here in Canada, I imagine that they would benefit from taking over all the Canadian operations that they has here related especially to copper and zinc. I wouldn't be surprised if BHP and Rio also come <laughs> after. Well, it's kind of back to this valuation issue, uh -huh. right? Like, I mean, if if it's you know if it's fairly valued, why is everybody you know running after it desperately? You know, like from all sides, it seems like there's everyone is coming for it. Which brings me to another issue, which I don't know if it's been discussed that much or if you've seen that much. Mm -hmm. Like, has the Canadian government weighed in on this? Because to me. If I'm in the government, I go, you guys can say whatever you want. We're not losing our copper. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Not yet. <laughs> Again, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear or see something this week or no, not even the following week. It has to be before April 26. In the past, it has happened. Companies trying to take over Canadian companies and the government has come around. In those cases, in those both cases that I remember, they've been Chinese companies. And uh, that's another issue because China controls a lot of the resources that the world needs for the transition to a green energy. And the US and Canada both have been signing agreements to kind of be able to fend off this Chinese advance and have some local supply of these metals, particularly copper, and ideally also lithium, zinc, rare earths. But the problem is here we are just, in, except copper, we are just starting to develop these kinds of mines and uh, China's there already. So it was an easy decision for the Canadian government, I should say. It's like, no. But in this case, it's not a Chinese company and it will bring value to shareholders, Canadian shareholders. So I don't know what's going to happen there. That's the next episode in the, in the soap opera, I think. <laughs> Great. So in, in a sense, that's the response. When I say it's undervalued, it's like, well, actually, they're offering more than the market is valuing it right now. Adrian, mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. that like that's ultimately the right. So exactly. So then as we look forward then and actually just one other. But remember BHP and trying yes, to take over course. Potash Corp. I mean, they oh, did. yes. Right. I mean, it was a while ago, but they did. Actually, there is precedent. I guess, mm -hmm. for again, and it was seen as critical. It was food security with Potash uh -huh. Corp, right? So exactly. I would not be shocked to see that again. So as we wrap up here, then, what are you <laughs> looking for now? Like, in a sense, where are we now? And I guess, like, what are you looking for for happening next? Basically, I think on one hand, I'm very curious to see if uh, the Canadian government is going to come out and have their saying about this deal. But on the other hand, I think that tech may, in fact, postpone this vote. And instead of having it next week, we'll move it 
who knows, a week, two weeks, but they will try to fine tune a bit more the plan in order to regain the shareholders that have been swayed by, by Glencore. Exactly. And I was seeing uh, a report there that like Nagel, like Glencore is trying to frame this vote as, you know, if the vote goes one way, then it's pro Glencore takeover. And if you vote the other way, it's not. And then tech is just saying, no, this is just about splitting the company up. This has nothing to do with Glencore. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they also take has emphasized a lot um, their own track record on environmental social governance issues, while Glencore, as you know, has a very bad reputation with bribery, corruption, all sorts of claims that have been proved and they pay for it. So, but as I said, that all happened with the previous CEO, uh, who knows what's going to happen now. Both of them have a lot of energy to keep pushing their own way. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating dynamic that you mentioned there, that they're both new CEOs trying to prove themselves and that there's a lot personally for them to gain by uh -huh. kind of winning. There's a lot on the line uh, mm -hmm. personally, which is an added element to the story. Cecilia Jamazmi, senior editor at mining.com. Please come back to the Northern Miner podcast. We'd love to keep more in touch with you on what's going on in the mining world. Anytime. I really appreciate this, this opportunity. It was fun. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that comprehensive special coverage of the tech deal. It is a big deal, a crown jewel. And clearly the story is still developing. It's going to be fascinating to see how it turns out. Again, I think the government's going to pull the Trump card on this whole thing, should it go through. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And thank you once again to Cecilia Jamazmi and Darren Campbell for joining us. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.